I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest has just taken over the running of a reinsurance business that, like many other in the sector, has been right-sizing and refocusing its underwriting over the past few years. But now Renault Guide and Axe XL Re are clearly out the other side and are looking to grow from their $2.5 billion global premium base. In this podcast, we focus on the state of the reinsurance market and Renault's plans for the business, as well as the question of how this reinsurer fits in strategically at one of the world's largest insurance groups. With executive experience in investment banking and with a challenging AXA group role already under his belt, Renault brings a refreshingly broad perspective to our conversation. Listen on, Renault combines high intelligence with great charm, and you'll learn a lot from time spent in his company. Enjoy the podcast. Renault, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much, Mark. For anyone who doesn't know you, why don't you briefly introduce yourself to the audience, give us a quick run-through of your career to date and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, first of all, let me tell you, Mark, that I'm a happy man because I'm delighted to be with you all today. It's a great occasion to be able to engage with you all. Speaking of my career, which is the question you raised more specifically, I'm privileged enough to have been the chief executive officer of AXA XL Reinsurance starting September 2023. So pretty fresh, but already, you know, very much settled into the job with its uh, challenges and opportunities. Prior to that, I used to serve as chief risk officer for AXA Group starting in September 2019. So as you can imagine, that was a pretty quiet period. No pandemic, no <laughs> war, no inflation, no volatility in interest rates. And that's the whole group? Yeah, the whole group, the whole exit group, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a small job, isn't it, Renaud? Indeed, indeed, yeah, yeah. So lots of spare time, yeah. And ahead of that, I also had lots of spare time because uh, I used to spend eight years with Goldman Sachs, first in London and then in Paris, uh, where I was one of the managing directors of the investment bank in France, serving as advisor to large corporates with approximately 150 billion transaction experience across all industries, you know, think transportation, energy, infrastructure, media, luxury, IT services, you name it, but insurance and reinsurance, actually. So as life is a learning journey, I thought it would be good to enter the insurance industry in 2019. You sound like a very useful man to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope my company is enjoyable. You should ask my wife and my kids. <laughs> Speaking of them, I'm a, I'm a happy father of three, two boys and one girl. So you can see already the, the diversification DNA, which uh, shows I was uh, actually poised to, to work in, uh, in insurance and, and reinsurance. Just like to add a, a personal commitment of mine, which is that I'm very engaged into supporting diversity and equal opportunities. And my tangible involvement uh, for that cause is to be actively supporting a not-for-profit, which is called Article One, which is based in France and mentors and supports young people from underprivileged backgrounds to help them achieve their higher studies and get into the first steps of their career into the, the job market. And I've been a, a board member of Article One for the past 10 years. That's a long commitment then. That's very commendable, Renault. Right. I suppose we better start talking about business. Indeed. AXA XL Re obviously has been through a lot of changes in recent years. I think the most public of these would be a public commitment to reduction in cat risk appetite. Is it right to say that process is now finished? And then having completed all those changes, remediations or whatever you want to call them, what's your strategy now going forward? Yeah, very interesting you would pick up that topic, Mark. You know, if we take a step back, I think that back a couple of years ago, some of our peers took drastic decisions to completely exit the property cat market. 
and they really, you know, really increased their capabilities to write any such business. We did not make a similar call. What we believe is that the cat market is a segment where basically I think we, like many other players, were probably overweight. And so the segment was overweight and was underpriced. I think insurers were not properly compensated for the risks they were taking in recognition, you know, of the, the last trend, which has been really moving at a very fast pace. So what we did is right-sizing that business, recalibrating its share in our portfolio. And to pick your question specifically, indeed, all of that effort is behind us. We are very happy with this business mix that we have now in our portfolio. I would like also to thank our clients for bearing with us and supporting us throughout that effort. And I have to say that we got a lot of understanding from all of our clients. You know, we were pretty forceful in doing that. We did that transparently and upfront. And I think what is great when you do things transparently and upfront is that you do it in one go. It can be a bit painful, but then it's behind you. You've been able to turn the corner. It's done for good. And this is where we are now. We have a really solid and robust portfolio, which is now a platform for growth. So you've come down a difficult street and you've turned the corner. So what are you going to be doing? I mean, are you going to be going faster down this nice new road where you're happier, more balanced? Do you think, you know, the vehicle you have is now in better condition? What we'll be doing is what our clients enable us to do. You know, uh, we are here to serve them and to really address their needs and put our capabilities to work uh, for their benefit. And what we can see indeed is that there's a lot of demand from clients which really meets the wide spectrum of our capabilities across all product lines. And the fact that we are a global insurance undertaking with specialities really across the full spectrum, if you think property, if you think casualty, if you think cyber, if you think specialty, we can really cover all of their needs. And so we are ready to grow where we can help them. Having reset people's perceptions and expectations of what you want to do when you're going out there, when you're talking to a broker at one of the industry gatherings or that you're visiting each other, what do you want to project to them? You know, what sort of business? For example, again, you said that you have all these capabilities, but yes, as a medium sized reinsurer, do you want to be seen as a specialist in some things or somebody who can support those students across the board and globally? You know, what's your strategy within that and how do you want people to perceive you? I noted, Mark, you, you mentioned the idea of a reset. What I would like to focus on is actually there's been a great deal of continuity and we've been focusing on our strengths and what really makes us stand out in the market. And I think that the quality and the intensity of the relationship that we have being positioned as a trusted insurance partner with a large client base, the fact that we have a global footprint, that we have extremely capable and knowledgeable underwriters, the fact that we have a rock solid balance sheet, we have a credit rating, which is in the double A category, and that's really, really standing out in the industry. And our clients do value that. And typically, you know, these are the USPs that they are looking for when as brokers or citizens, they look to us for business and for insurance coverage. So do you think therefore, because you are global, you've got the balance sheet strength that you'd see in only very, very top tier insurers, is that you're therefore your ambition to go on a path towards becoming top tier? What I like is that we should consider top tier as like, if I'm a student, if I'm a reinsurance buyer, if I'm the CEO of an insurance company, do I believe that in hard times, when I need resilience, when I need support, this business partner will be there for me? Yeah. And the answer with Excel Reinsurance is obviously yes. 
because we are solid, we are robust, we are true to our word, to our contract. We have a great quality of service. Our clients know that when it comes uh, claims pay at time, we are very swift and we pay out graciously. And so that's part of our DNA. And we want reinsurance to act as a security. And we want to make sure that clients feel comfortable with that. And this is really what they are getting when they transact with us. But we all know there are these three or four reinsurance names that any reinsurance committee would pretty much wave through unless they were worried about particularly large accumulations of exposure to them. But they would generally wave them through with an absolute green light. You, you want to be seen alongside those peers. Well, it's not only how we want to be seen, it's also, you know, what we focus on every day and what we monitor. And actually, there's a very tangible metric to reflect what you were just mentioning, Mark, which is what we would call technically, you know, the sign down, which is basically the gap between what you quoted for and the capacity that you ultimately get allocated. We are very happy to see that actually we have a very small sign downs, i.e., you know, there's a very small discount when clients decide how to structure their programs and how to allocate capacity between different providers they highly value our signature. That's very good to hear because, yes, I suppose we, we ought to talk about the market. The market's been transformed. How are you viewing it? Most of your peers are growing and sometimes, obviously, we're just growing. Even if you're just maintaining yourself flat, you're still growing through rate. Are you targeting growth this year? Yeah, we are growing and not only targeting, but also achieving growth, very much so. Happy to support our clients in their own growth trajectory. So we are, we are growing, obviously, uh, keeping disciplined risk selection, which is the key to success and to long-term sustainability and solidity, but we are actively growing. The market has really calmed down compared to 1123, obviously, which is the renewal before you arrived. This now 1124 renewal has been a lot more orderly and that capacity has returned, particularly in some of the more remote layers on catastrophe. And yes, we were talking about signing down and overplacing of some of those more attractive remote layers, which obviously is something you've already mentioned. So generally within your planning, are you expecting to encounter a more competitive environment in 2024? Obviously, we've, we've had what's looking like a very good year for profitability in general for reinsurers after the reinsurance reset of a year before. Some very high returns on equity, going to be retained earnings and a certain amount of additional new capital coming in. Are you expecting overall slightly more competitive environment? Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. The insurance market is by design always highly competitive. If you look at it, you have a limited number of potential clients, all of which are sophisticated professionals. And you have supplies which can be endless, you know, because it's potentially as large as the capital which is available worldwide. You have transparency on prices with customers able to shift very quickly. You have transparency on margins. You have a lot of innovation. So those are all the features of a highly competitive market. So I think it's good because competition, you know, is also what keeps us on our toes, what keeps us alive, uh, what keeps us creative for our clients. So we do welcome that. And we believe that we thrive in a competitive market. But I would say that the market is as competitive as it is structurally. 
And do you think some of that, obviously, price may come under pressure, but what about some of those structures? Obviously, retentions have been increased, attachment points have been increased for the reinsurance industry overall quite significantly. We know that most students would love to bring that attachment point down if they possibly could. But up until now, the story has been that reinsurers are not comfortable doing that. Do you think that will hold? I think, you know, we are getting to a point of balance where reinsurers uh, do perform uh, the role that they have in the whole industry value chain, uh, which is to provide capital protection for tail events rather than taming volatility for frequency attritional risks. This is where we are getting. And I see that as a fairer balance. So frankly, the dialogue that we're having with our clients in that is very constructive and you will see that clients also take advantage of what you are mentioning in terms of higher attachment points by also purchasing capacity, you know, with higher limits for their towers to make sure that they are indeed covered for what could really go wrong when it gets ugly. And when it gets ugly is when you need a reinsurer and also when you need a solid one at that. Right. So you want to be there for those big tail events, big capital protection events, rather than the other type of ugliness, which can be just a few quarters of earnings protection, that kind of thing. You'd rather be uh, the really important protection rather than the more cosmetic type of protection, which a lot of students obviously have been used to in that softer market that preceded 1123. Yeah, you, you quoted the word important. And I would really bounce off that, which is that we want to be there for our clients in important moments of their corporate life and to support them when they really need us. And so rather than just being there because there have been some attritional losses and aggregation of some attritional losses, you'd rather be there for when there's a really large capital event. I think this is when our help is the most needed, actually. In this renewal, there was a reasonable difference of opinion over casualty. There was a lot of consensus everywhere else, but in casualty, particularly US casualty, there was a difference of opinion. It's probably always been that way. How can we not disagree about casualty in general when it's you know the longest tail class that we talk about and with so much uncertainty throwing in the court closure around COVID and of course, resurgent inflation after opening up after COVID. So it couldn't be more justifiable to have a debate about casualty and casualty reinsurance. Where did you side on this debate? Obviously, it was a strong market. It was an interesting market because of course, people took their decisions and acted accordingly. But where did you stand? I think you're very right to put it that way. You know, given the slow loss emergence in that product class, it should come as no surprise that there's a wide range, or I should even say a wide dispersion of views. If we can't disagree about this, we you know there will have to be a consensus on everything and we wouldn't expect to have a consensus. <laughs> Otherwise, there wouldn't be a market. Indeed. We have actually very talented underwriters in casualties. So this is an important business for us. And we, we do provide a lot of capacity to our clients. We've been taking a cautious and selective stance because we do believe that, especially in the US, there might not be a full recognition of frequency and severity trends and the multiple drivers behind that. And if I can elaborate on this very topic, I think that there has been a lot of focus on macroeconomic drivers of economic inflation, you know, as measured by the CPI in the overall economy, because the pandemic and the public policy response to it really unleashed inflation, which had been forgotten in the years prior to that, if not in the decades prior to that. And I think the focus on economic inflation might have actually overshadowed the assessment of the pace of medical inflation and social inflation, which actually have been running unabated throughout that whole period. And so the fact that we've been able 
thanks to a very successful monetary policies, especially by the Fed in the US, to get inflation you know, back under control, does not mean that we've been able to eradicate social inflation and medical inflation. The legal backdrop is quite supportive to increase that court activity and the, the verdict pattern is definitely pointing to higher inflation. So what we do is really spend a lot of time with our clients to understand their bespoke underwriting policy, to understand where their own portfolio of risks is, to understand their risk appetite, what controls do they have. And it's really very important that we get transparency because ultimately it's a partnership with our clients. We are all in the same boat all together. They have skin in the game, we have skin in the game, and our success can only come through our clients' success. So we want to make sure that we are fully aligned in terms of how we approach the market and this is a condition to successfully write casualty business. So it sounds like you're in the more cautious camp, if that's my way of putting words in your mouth. I hope that sounds right, Renaud. I would say we are disciplined because, you know, what we owe to our clients is really long-term resilience and solidity. And if we start doing reckless things, then, you know, you need to adjust your reserves or whatever. So, I mean, what I can say is that we are very happy with our underwriting policy, precisely because we've been disciplined and selective. We are very happy with our reserves as they stand. And we believe that the level of comfort that we can have today really owes to that laser focus on not doing silly and reckless things. And it sounds like as you're out in the market seeking those partners, obviously long-term partners, casualty insurers buying reinsurance from you, it sounds like you want to find people with a similar mindset. If you're interviewing for these different seedants that you'd like to support, it sounds like you want to do business with ones that have a similar view to you that are very focused, not aggressive. I would agree with you. You use the word mindset and I would speak of a convergence of corporate cultures. Uh, what I really find is that reinsurance is much more than just a transaction. It's an alignment of values, of ways of working, and this is uh, how the best relationships develop. Something else you mentioned earlier, actually, was cyber. Obviously, we know we have a fantastic demand picture in cyber, which is certainly bearing out with it still probably the fastest organically growing class of insurance in the world. And looking at all the projections, it, it seems that it's going to fulfill most of those projections. And in fact, to the extent that the only worry might have been that we would run out of reinsurance capacity and ILS capacity to support that growth, uh, there wouldn't be enough capital available. But it seems that we're in an interesting moment of maturity. Would you agree with that assessment? For example, we've seen some ILS, we've seen a greater um, coalescence of the varying third-party modeling views. Do you think we're at a point of maturity now for the cyber class in that classes of insurance tend to develop, they have insurance and then they have proportional reinsurance supporting them, and then we can move to excess of loss structures and ILS and other more complicated things when we have a more comfortable idea of exactly where the risk is. Do you think we're getting to that sort of stage now? It's definitely maturing. I'm not sure it has reached yet the stage of maturity, but it's maturing and doing so at a fast pace. But I think cyber is a good example of what our industry is about. It's about harnessing innovation and it's about the alignment of interest between insurers and reinsurers. And ultimately, if you look at what happens in cyber and what lays the basis for successful underwriting, it's about the individual risk. It's about the wordings, the terms and conditions, the risk selection. And so I think that even more than the tango, if you allow me that word, between insurers and insurers, 
It's really about the relationship between insurers as primary carriers and the ultimate policyholder. So to me, you know, it's actually not a zero-sum game between insurers and reinsurers. It's about all of us in the value chain of the industry serving the ultimate policyholder. As AXA, XL Re, are you more comfortable now in terms of, obviously, we've spoken earlier about you wanting to play that classic reinsurer role of capital protection. Are you more sure now, given the work and the research that's been done into the systemic big event risk that we all know is in cyber, but of course we can all debate hugely about how big it is, that exposure. Are you happier now with where, you know, in the way that we can all be much happier about what we think a Cat 5 landfall in Miami is worth, because we spent the last 30 years spending a lot of money and time analysing the science of how that works and having a lot of experience. Do you think we're getting there with cyber in terms of something that can make you much more comfortable? Obviously, there's always going to be statistical variants around how comfortable you feel and how adequate you feel you're being remunerated for removing of that volatility and that very large potential capital event. Are you more comfortable? If I get your question right, Mark, it's really about the modeling and the assessment of the potential loss distribution. Particularly about modeling, yeah, because obviously it's something that we've only been trying to do this for, say, less than a decade, whereas compared to, you know, hurricane modeling, perhaps over 30 years already. So for sure in cyber, we have less hindsight on the loss history than on, on natural events. I think what is very important is that we can get data transparency so that we can build for the benefit of the broader economy and society a record of incidents. And I could say that in that respect, the rules recently enacted by the ACC are helpful because there will be you know, more transparency, more visibility into what happened. And then we can indeed better assess what is the loss distribution profile of that specific product class. So I think we will get there and we are getting more comfortable with our ability to assess what can happen. But you're happy to be offering your capacity in that marketplace as it stands? We're happy to support our clients, provided we are comfortable with their approach to underwriting and the controls and the risk management framework that they have in place. We're always talking about technology in our business, but I think it seems to become much more relevant. I'm sitting in London. Of course, the London market is continually renewing its processes, but it seems to be this year it will be taking a step to be a much more digital market than it has been before. There's been a lot of investment, and obviously we've had the insurtech phenomenon over the last decade. What do you think the effects of this are going to be in the medium and then the long term when we have a fully digital value chain for the first time? What do you think is going to happen? I think you're right to mention that cyber is not only a risk, but it's also a technological opportunity. And I think we are on the cusp of a great transformation. Do I believe that our whole industry will become fully automated and underwriterless? Certainly not. I do believe that there will always be room for human connectivity and human judgment. Relationships do matter and they cannot be fully captured by models. So you need to strike the right balance and to make sure that technological progress comes as a support and not a substitution to our knowledge, our insight and the judgment provided by our decades of experience uh, underwriting. And, you know, I mean, I'm a business guy at heart, and I told you about my, my experience prior to joining the, the AXA group. I have really focused since I joined AXA XLE on us turning into even more of a client-centric organization. Uh, we put the client at the heart of everything we do, 
And that starts with human relationship and understanding our client's strategy and how we can actually help them deliver on what other objectives, what they have committed to vis-a-vis public investors when they are listed. And to do all of that, frankly, you cannot rely solely on machines or AI or automation. You need a human touch. So you can't take an AI out for lunch, can you? Not really. I mean, they don't eat anything or they don't have a good conversation. Yeah, not, not, not that I know. No. And also, what do you think about, obviously, yes, particularly as you've been so connected to capital markets and other totally different vertical sectors of industry around the world through your previous role, when we digitize the actual value chain of insurance, we bring that ability to go straight from an insured through an insurer and perhaps a reinsurer straight to a capital market without any friction, without having to keep removing 10% commission from some broker at every every stage. What do you think that will do? You know, obviously what happened with the big bang in share markets or in bond markets had a profound effect and things changed. Things got much quicker. You know, you have flash crashes and you have all these things that we certainly don't have in insurance. Do you think just because we could become faster in insurance with zero friction, I would say I don't think that will actually change insurance that much because, as you said before, it won't change those relationships and it won't change the reason why you buy insurance. I, Even though perhaps you could become a day trader in catastrophe risk if you wanted to, would you really want to? Whereas you can obviously you can trade stocks and shares all day with algorithms and things. Do you think that would ever happen in insurance, particularly given your previous investment banking experience? That's a great question. And indeed, we've seen a transformation of the securities and, and capital markets uh, industry. What I believe is that when it comes to reinsurance, not all papers have the same quality. So you couldn't, you know, allocate your capacity blindly or just hand it off to a machine telling you ultimately, oh yeah, this is your program, you know, and I have actually allocated it to exotic jurisdictions, but that's fine. No, actually that would not be fine because you, you, you know that when trouble comes, I mean, some commitments could not be fulfilled. So I think that there's so much differentiation despite sort of an optical and shallow appearance of, of sameness. Uh, there's so much differentiation between actually the robustness that reinsurers can provide that you can't really move full-blown to something which would be um, automated and, and form-like. That being said, I would tend to agree that there's probably progress to be made from the starting point where we are at now in terms of transparency of the price discovery and efficiency of the capacity allocation. And do you think this ILS world will become quicker, that we'll be able to access capital much faster? Also, what about in the world where things can fly around at the speed of electricity, for example, we won't bother with 12-month contracts. Might they become a historical relic? It's funny you would raise that today because earlier this week, you know, I was reconvening with uh, the whole leadership team of Excel Reinsurance, and it's a topic that I threw into the debate. And I think the industry has standards and Many of our clients also run their risk appetite with yearly reporting requirements. And they want, you know, that yearly renewal window to be able to have an opportunity to tweak the structure of the program, to benefit pricing-wise from uh, the improvements in their risk management from one year onto another. Yet, you know, introducing more volatility into the coverage and the placement on an intra-year basis, I'm not sure actually that this is something that our clients aspire to. And actually, this is a, a feedback I got from my team, which is like, I mean, 
great idea from a brainstorming standpoint, Renault, and thanks for kicking the tires. But actually, no client ever asked us about it. And I suppose if you, even if everything was constant, you know, continuous contracts, you'd still want to diarize some point at which you have a proper look at them again. So you might as well do that annually anyway. Indeed. You need a touch point. And I think, I mean, the, the yearly cadence, I think probably works well for most players in the industry. Yeah, I suppose it's not broken, so we don't need to fix it. ESG, AXA Group, and particularly, you know, you've had that role in the AXA Group, has really been a pioneer. And well, rightly so, as the largest insurance company in the world, or I mean, it's difficult to define. It depends how you measure it. But anyway, either top insurance company in the world or number two, very close, has rightly been a pioneer in ESG initiatives. We had that setback with the Net Zero Insurance Alliance last year. We seem to be in a bit of a hiatus. What's the way forward? What's most likely to happen now? We want to make sure that we create the conditions of sustainability and the world being livable and insurable and reinsurable going forward. And I think, you know, that's the foundation for that engagement, which is basically almost a fiduciary duty from a risk management standpoint. If you're serious about value creation and about the robustness of your balance sheet, you have to care about climate change. So this is why AXA back in 2021 founded the Net Zero Insurance Alliance together with seven other large insurers and reinsurers. And I was privileged enough to be the first chairman of the Net Zero Insurance Alliance. And I recall, you know, that back then, immediately I said, well, listen, guys, this is a very noble cause, but we need to do it really in a bulletproof fashion from a legal standpoint. So the, the first ever workshop that I set up within the NZA was actually one on legal matters and especially antitrust. And I recall that at that time, people were telling me, you're just crazy. You're going to stymie all the efforts. You should mm -hmm. immediately work, you know, with scientists and climate experts. Don't call the lawyers. It will be a drag on your progress. And I said, no, guys, I mean, I want to make sure that we work on a solid footing. So we need to be really flawless from a legal standpoint. And this is why we got the help of outside counsels as well, namely uh, not, not on Rose Fulbright, which is, as you know, a, a highly respected law firm out of London. And so we took you know, great care in doing things really in a spotless fashion. And we remain confident that we did it the right way. But at some point, it was no longer a sort of a matter of a legal analysis. The whole issue became political and irrational. But the very reason why we could afford to discontinue our membership of the NZIA is precisely because the NZIA had already achieved a lot in these two years. And I think you mentioned earlier a, a setback, Mark. I mean, maybe a setback in terms of, of perception and optics, but really not in terms of substance. Because what we managed to do, you know, from a scientific standpoint, to come up with the first ever standard of measurement of carbon emissions associated with insurance and reinsurance, which is a tool which is open source, available for each and every undertaking to use and which is now actually used on a widespread basis globally by many players, including some of these which wanted to apply to the NZIA but had not formally joined the alliance yet. And so I think, you know, that leaves a legacy in terms of ability to really continue to carry the fight against climate change, because what gets measured gets done. So by improving the way we can measure it, we'll improve actually in terms of impact of our action. Right. So there's a lot more to come on this, but then a lot of progress has already been made. And so we're just going to have to keep watching this space. I think it's one of these topics that is never going to be away from us, particularly for the next 25 years. So we'll doubtless be able to talk about this at some point in the future. Reinsurance as part of 
large global insurance groups has always been a question. Sometimes it, reinsurers being part of large global insurance groups has always been a bit of a phenomenon, uh, or perhaps that have their own super cycles that when I started in the industry in the early 90s, every insurance company had a reinsurance arm. Uh, probably every top 10 insurance company was a top 10 reinsurer as well. In the last 30 years, that's probably the cycle has gone the other way in general to say that insurers wanted to concentrate on being insurers and not owning reinsurers, partly because they don't want the volatility that comes with that. So what's your view in terms of, you know, you're part of this global business, either the largest or the second largest insurance group in the world. Is being a reinsurer as part of that group, is that wholly compatible with being part of a global insurance conglomerate or not? Since you've been taking a historical perspective drawing on from your, your own experience, Mark. Yeah, things come, yeah. you know, companies used to be all conglomerates that in the 60s, that was the fashion. And then they started to divest themselves and become specialists in, in one vertical or another. These are very long, long trends. Yeah, you, you, you told me you started your career in the 90s and now you're referring to the 60s. So <laughs> I don't know where we will go back to, Mark, but we learned probably interesting things about your long tenure in the industry. But if you look actually at the roots of AXA Group, and AXA was founded in the 80s, which I will take is before you started in the, in the industry. Yes, it is. I was at school. If you look at AXA's corporate values and DNA, it's very entrepreneurial all the way back to what our founder, Claude Bebea, achieved back then. It's about global reach. It's about focusing on clients and being highly valued by clients. And if you think entrepreneurial, if you think global, if you think client-serving, all of that sounds a lot like AXA Excel Reinsurance. So, you know, we are very much in sync with the AXA DNA. And if you look at AXA's current strategic priorities, focus on technical excellence, pivot to commercial lines, sound capital management, all of that, it's actually bang in line with what AXA Excel Reinsurance achieves. So we are a contributor to AXA's strategic success. We are accretive access financial performance. And I would say we are almost the poster child of these strategic priorities. So it's very much consistent and actively delivering for the benefit of the broader group. And if I just take the words of our group CEO, Thomas Buber, commenting on our latest public results release, which was back at the half year 2023, what Thomas said at the time, you know, I mean, is XXLV is performing well and the model is working. And we want to uh, selectively grow the franchise again. So all of that, you know, is really a forward-leading perspective for us. And we are happy to be a, an active and accretive uh, citizen within the Exegol. And I suppose your job is, if you have a much more balanced business, then of course, they're going to be less likely to cause any surprises to the head office. Yeah, but you know, sometimes, I mean, if you endeavor not to deliver bad surprises and sometimes deliver good surprises, I can tell you, you're having a good time as a CEO. <laughs> yes, I wish you every luck with that. One last thing, we're always talking about talent in this industry, and it, it seems to be always in very short supply. No CEO has ever said there's too much of it. What's your pitch when you're out? It's almost part of this brand identity you're creating as a business. What's that pitch to somebody that you really want to hire? What's your story that you tell them? First, let me tell you, Mark, that I'm very happy with the talent I found within the organization, which I am now in charge of. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on the ground with the teams and, I mean, super engaged, super knowledgeable, great team spirit. So I really wouldn't trade our franchise for any other when it comes to talent. We have an amazing team. 
When it comes to external talent, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to indeed receive a lot of uh, cold outreach and, and CVs, you know, sent to us, people volunteering and raising their hand and saying, oh, you know what, I spotted uh, what you're doing. I would like to be part of the journey. What can I do? And so we had a lot of people asking to be interviewed and even applying, you know, when there's no, uh, no specific job uh, offer on display. I would not call that a pitch, actually, because we are very open. And I believe that it's important that what people see when they think about our organization is tantamount to what they get if they join us. The last thing I would want is sort of a casting error, you know, by basically having a gap between what you promise and then what you deliver. So to me, it's really a two-way street. With XXL, we as talent, what you see is what you get. And then what I tell candidates is also come as you are. I mean, don't dress it up because otherwise, you know, it will be uncovered at some point. So tell us who you are, what drives you, and we will make you successful and happy. So it's about sharing what we do, obviously, but also why we do it and how we do it. So it's our purpose and our operating model. What I really find fascinating with reinsurance is that any topic in each and every page of a newspaper, for those of us still flipping through the pages of newspapers, each topic that you find is actually relevant to reinsurance when it comes to geopolitics, climate change, which we discussed earlier, the economic and financial markets volatility, changes in culture and society, even topics like art, bloodstock, sports, liberal arts, you know, and all, all of that. I mean, it's really essential to our business. And if you do a career in reinsurance, you can be exposed to all of that. So you have a lot of diversity, diversity in what we handle, but also diversity in what people can do, because each reinsurance is about actual work, it's about underwriting, but it's also about finance, it's about legal, it's about HR, it's about marketing and communication. So there's really a very broad a span of careers that you can embrace when you join us. And what makes AXA Excel really specific for talent is, I think, our culture. We are a global organization, which means that you have a lot of mobility opportunities. But what we do is really that we make sure that the talent joining us is exposed to change and is empowered to take responsibilities. We do believe that you learn by doing, and it's by being exposed through osmosis with more senior people to live situations, by being able gradually to take risks on your own, that you will hone your skills and become a more seasoned reinsurance team members. And I would add something which I really think is a defining feature which is that with our size at AXA XLV, we are a sweet spot for talent because we are large enough, I mean, the, the magnitude and also the quality of our balance sheet to serve the largest clients worldwide and be on the most significant programs. But we also are nimble enough to operate as a family and for young talent to have easy access to the upper ranks within the organization. I'm just out of a week in, in Zurich uh, where I spent a lot of time with our team on the ground, whatever the level in the organization, I can tell you, I know people personally. So if they have an idea to share, if they have an aspiration for their career, it's not as if, you know, they would have to send an email to whichever private office, it could be channeled, filter, and then bureaucratic fashion, they would get a feedback after three months saying that, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Actually, it's much easier. I'm really approachable. Maybe part of that is also my style as, as a CEO, but overall as an organization, ideas can move quickly we are very connected, and I think that does really make a difference in terms of the intensity and the, the pace of learning that you can get. That sounds really good. And of course, you can grow because, you know, if you're smaller, you can grow quicker as well. And so you could be more exciting in that sense. 
I really enjoy your point about you know everything you read in the newspaper could become something to do with reinsurance. And that's what I always impress on any young reporter who, when they come for a job interview at an insurance magazine, they might think, oh God, insurance is going to be really, really boring. Reinsurance is going to be really boring. And part of my job as the, as the person trying to hire them, I always thought, well, you know, I'm competing with maybe they want to work in a national newspaper or something else. I want to tell them how exciting it is, how that practically everything on the evening news could be something they could be writing about the next morning. And so I very much agree with you on that because yes, certainly I've had over 30 years doing insurance and reinsurance and then writing about it and I, I haven't really ever got bored. So Renault, it hasn't been boring talking to you. It's been really interesting. And you were talking about being happy. You sound happy, which is good. And I hope you stay happy for the rest of the year. And until we talk again at some point in the future, thank you so much. I look forward to it. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Mark. Thank you for having me. And thanks all for listening. I wish you all a very successful 2024. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>